This is the Startup Guide to Growth. Scaling and growing a startup requires marketing, sales, product, talent strategy, and so much more. At Sapphire Ventures, we bring you actionable growth strategies that can help you scale your company with insights and stories from accomplished operators. Ready to grow your company? Then listen up. All opinions expressed by Sapphire and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions or views of Sapphire Ventures, LLC. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes and should not be construed as investment recommendation or otherwise relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Growth stage is an exciting time for a startup. Your product has moved past MVP and begun to demonstrate real market fit. Customers and revenues are on the rise. You're adding new features to outpace your competition and address ever-revolving requirements. You're scaling your infrastructure to meet demand. VCs are starting to hound you now more than ever. But scaling your company isn't just about increasing marketing budget and purchasing more disk space, more servers. Finding talented, experienced, dependable engineers is a critical component to success. And tech startups in particular often only go as far as the talent of their dev teams. These engineers are really the front lines between market laggards and category leaders, and their skills are often in short supply. And the engineering market is maybe more competitive now than it ever has been. The U.S. Labor Department reported that a record 4.3 million people quit their jobs in August, up from a previous record of 4 million this past April. And we see similar trends in other parts of the world, UK, etc. This phenomenon is generally referred to as the great resignation. And for startups, these challenges are compounded when you consider the fact that technical founders often have limited experience with hiring, particularly at the pace of the growth stage in which 2x, 3x, 4x organizational increases are not uncommon. And companies are really starting to expand from two to three pizza teams to, you know, 100, 200 plus in headcount. Even Shopify, a publicly traded company, announced plans this year to double their engineering force in 2021, hiring another 2,021 engineers. So the war for talent is definitely on. My name is David Carter, and I head up the Infrastructure and DevOps Center of Excellence at Sapphire Ventures. And my guest today is Rob Zuber, Circle CI CTO, and a 20-year tech veteran, three-time founder and five-time CTO, who has helped lead CircleCI through multiple rounds of funding, acquisitions, and into becoming one of the dominant players in the CI/CD market, all while scaling their engineering organization to over 300 people. Rob and I are going to discuss all things engineering talent, including tips for attracting new engineers, motivating and retaining folks once they're on board, and best practices around measuring productivity as your organizations grow. Rob, welcome, and thank you for being here today. Super excited to be talking to you about this subject. Before we jump in, I, I, I did just want to say congrats to you and to the entire Circle CI team on the 10-year anniversary. It's an incredible milestone, a testament of the product, the team, the culture, so just wanted to say congrats and, and welcome. Well, thanks so much and, and thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So to kick off, I think it would be great if we could start kind of in the full sort of life cycle. So starting with the first problem, which is just around attracting talent. 
I spoke about the great resignation in the introduction. The optimist in me thinks that all this churn in the market actually could be an opportunity to find new talent. You have all these smart people open and, and ready to try new things. But companies also need the right tools and sort of practices in place to find these people and to bring them on board. So first question for you, Rob, can you just talk about some of the tricks of the trade you've developed over the years at Circle CI to source and to find talent? And maybe if you can expand a little on, on how these practices and tips have sort of evolved over the years as the company's grown from 10 people to 50 to, to where it is today. Yeah, it's a great question. And I'm really sad to say for anyone listening that I don't think it's a one size fits all thing. But I think there is a core philosophy that that I spend a lot of time thinking about and has probably evolved in, in my time here and has also allowed us to evolve as a company, which is really understanding who you are as a company, what you're looking for, what it means to be successful in your organization. Because I think there's this general sense that I just need to go find the best engineer and and we could all identify the best engineer. But the right engineer for your organization at the right time is going to be different from organization to organization and from even within an organization over time. And so really spending the time to reflect on what you need, who you are, what you value, and I'm, I'm saying you, but like as, as a company and being agreed on that internally, I think is really important. If you can build a pipeline, which is its own piece we can talk a little bit about, but there's nothing worse than building a pipeline and then running people through an interview loop where multiple interviewers disagree about what it is they're even looking for. And you end up not being able to hire anyone because there's not that perspective, right? And I think one of the things that I, I really believe, and I'll steal this expression from David Epstein and Range, is this concept of match quality, right? Like people do great work when they're when there's a really high quality match to the type of work that they're doing. And different companies are different. I mean, that sounds ridiculous to say, but it's important to really spend time on, which is the types of work that I might do or the type of work that I might do at a particular company is going to be different from another another company. And it might be Anything from the specific problem that I'm solving, the type of customer for whom I'm solving that problem, how I go about my work day to day, the stage of the company, which I think is really important. You know, you tend to have a small number of generalists in the early days, maybe skewing senior because you're trying to solve really hard problems and you don't necessarily know what they are before you start through to getting to much greater scale and, and tending to specialize more, right? And you're looking for, A, people who have very specific experience because they're going to be constrained to, to working in a particular domain, maybe your subdomain of your overall business, and B, building much more of a bench, right? Like now you're investing in the operation of an organization at scale as opposed to finding product market fit. Like those are very, very different stages, right? So I would say above anything else, focusing on really understanding where you are, where you are right now, what matters to you and who's going to succeed in that environment. Because I said there's nothing worse than, than the interviewers not agreeing, but I will say there's something worse, which is hiring someone and then realizing that you've hired the wrong person, right? Because they're not interested in doing the work that you need to do. So if it's not a good fit, know that early and go find something that's going to be as a candidate, that's going to be great for you. And as someone trying to hire, find people who are going to be really excited to, to work on the stuff you're trying to do.
technical fit, cultural fit are obviously incredibly important and something to your point that you need to kind of vet and understand up front. Are there any kind of specific tactical approaches that you've kind of honed over the years just in terms of, you know, assessing technical talent? And do any of those approaches kind of vary depending on the different role types that you kind of walk through, whether it's a junior engineer that's sort of just coming on board just out of college or more senior kind of staff engineering type roles? Yeah, I mean, it matters everywhere. So I I think a really interesting example that I would think about, and this is more common probably in consumer organizations, but exists in in our space and others now, is you have engineers building across your stack, right? And we, you know, there's lots of jokes about what it means to be full stack now, where you're going from like the browser to the device driver, like no, no one's doing work like that. So, and it's not just like a technical specialization, but really the type of work and the expectation of the outcome. So uh, I'll try to be crisper in, in, with an example. We build a CI and CD platform, right? We are at the heart of other software engineers delivering software every day. And so when we work on functionality around the execution of jobs, we spend a lot of time making sure that we are building robust, scalable systems. And then we have a team, you know, responsible for activation, engagement, like that, or, or a group of teams, I guess, that are that are in that part of our business, right? Like, how do I make sure that potential customers are seeing the right features, that they're exposed to the value that we can give to them in the platform, et cetera? And doing that effectively is is really a job of rapid experimentation, right? Like, there are areas of that work where you often try ten things and throw out nine. Right. And the idea of, as an engineer, wanting to throw out 90% of the work that you do is very different from the idea of I'm building a scalable, robust system and sort of everything I have to do has to be right. For sure, there are overlaps, but they're, they're very different. And it's not just technical skill. It's sort of mindset and approach and what you're interested in doing for the business and, and what motivates you. Right. And so I think that we get hung up on technical investments and, of course, technical assessments. And technical assessments are valuable, absolutely, but the ability to scale a distributed system to millions of users is very different from the ability to iterate quickly and build small experiments that aren't going to take down the site, but also aren't necessarily going to live that long and making you know the right decisions about the trade-offs. And so having real conversations with folks in the interview cycle about what it is that you're expecting from them, what the job looks like. It's not just coding, right? We're all not just showing up and coding. Like that's a part of what we do in service of, of doing something else for the business. Got it. That makes a ton of sense. I think, you know, one of the other things that we think about, I guess, in addition to just finding people and building out, I think you used the term bench earlier, is finding ways to you know, kind of flip that on its head. So instead of sort of outbound approaches to sourcing talent, really building out kind of a standing in the community and positioning a company to be kind of a a destination for engineers. So curious if you have any thoughts about that, just how to go about kind of becoming one of those destination places for engineers, you know, what are the things that they care about? How do you get to a place where sort of proactively people are finding you? And how do you think about that? Well, I have a pro tip that probably doesn't work for a lot of people, which is be a tool that engineers use every day. And so we, yeah, you know, we have a that's 
you're saying we have a lot of brand recognition yeah exactly (laughs) so it's a little difficult to build off of that one but regardless of that we like many organizations whether they're in our space or not we talk not just about what our product does like as an engineering organization we talk to the market about just what we see as effective you know, software delivery, how we think about organizing our team. We put together a competency matrix, like a career ladder, which I think is is becoming a much more common thing in engineering organizations. And we made it public. One, because we thought it was helpful to people, but two, because that would give folks a sense of what it was like to work in our organization. I mean, it's very, very clearly outlines what we value and put emphasis on, right? So we tend to speak a lot at industry conferences from an engineering perspective, again, on how not just how we've built things technically, but how we've built things in our organization. And then, as I said, we get a little bit of a boost from the fact that we, we're building a tool that people love to use. And so that gives us some, some brand identity as well. Just as important to attracting talent is retaining folks once they're onboarded. There's so much time that's spent finding developers, investing in, you know, interviewing them, training them, getting them up to speed. Once they're on board, you don't want to lose out on that investment and you want to be able to keep good people. And I think the reality of the great resignation is it really works both ways, right? I mean, you've got more engineers available. There's more people open to roles. There's more talent kind of out in the ecosystem, but you're also at a greater risk for losing good people. So let's pivot a little bit, if you don't mind, and and talk about some of the, the key ingredients and kind of best practices for retaining talent. I think you guys, as you just sort of touched on, you're building developer tools, right? So maybe let's start there. Can you talk about the importance of the developer experience? What sort of tools, libraries, processes you're kind of putting in place to enable your 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 engineering talent to do their jobs more effectively and, and how that can be a useful mechanism for retaining folks. I think that one of the things that I would tie in there is this whole concept of, of the types of engineers that you're bringing in, right? And you probably have a spectrum in your organization. And so when you talk about developer experience, in particular, the folks who are really trying to achieve something simple, which I guess spans across the organization, but the skill sets that they bring might be different, right? When they find themselves having to learn very complex new systems in order to achieve that simple thing, the frustration builds quickly, I would say. You know, I think in in software development, we spend a lot of time talking about flow. It's a subject I happen to be interested in more generally. And people, when they feel like they can get done what they're trying to get done and it aligns with their motivations, that builds on itself, right? It's stacked. So I feel more motivated because I'm doing the things that motivate me and I'm, I'm succeeding at them. And so from a developer experience perspective, most of what we're trying to do, both in terms of the product that we build and offer to our customers, as well as how we think about engineering team internally, what we're trying to do is make it possible for folks to focus on the thing that matters to them, right? So let's say I'm a, I'm a user or a UI developer, right? And I'm I'm trying to build some front-end capabilities. If I spend half of my day worrying about how the build system works or how my stuff gets deployed into Kubernetes and what even is Kubernetes, it doesn't feel like I'm getting a lot of work done on the thing that I'm really trying to move. And so I think 
that a huge part of what we think and talk about from a developer experience perspective is really enabling folks to get the right thing done quickly. Like I don't need to learn a bunch of other tools in order to do the thing I wanted to work on. And as the system becomes more complex, that's abstracted away from me until I need to look past that abstraction. And maybe it's just my background, but I tend to think of organizations and the processes in the same way that I think of software design and that I want good boundaries and abstractions to isolate what I need to worry about. So if I do need to go inspect something, I can go inspect it and it's well-contained. And if I don't, then I don't need to worry about it because I can focus on the thing that's sort of my job day to day. And I honestly think that's a big part of where we've struggled as a community in software engineering overall, or as an industry over the last five to 10 years, is we've created a lot of capabilities, a lot of tooling that allow us to do bigger and better things, but we haven't necessarily built the abstractions over them yet that are effective. And so as individual developers, we're forced to understand much more than is really critical to our own job either understand or interact with. And that overall cognitive load is a burden. And so, you know, as people are looking, because you keep referring to this great resignation, I think maybe one of the things that's that's causing that is this, I really just want this sense that I'm I'm getting things done, right? That I'm I'm focused on the thing that I came here to do and I'm able to do it without a lot of overhead. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it seems like it's it's one part people just don't want to be distracted. They want to be able to focus on the things that are important and sort of the value add activities. And then it's one part, I think people just generally want to use sort of the latest and greatest shiniest new toys in the market and best of breed tooling. I think that's quite right. And one of the places that we tend to get hung up is I saw that Netflix is doing this sort of thing. And, you know, for anyone who's listening who works at Netflix, then cool, definitely do it. But that's not necessarily the right tool for everybody, right? Like we, we talked a little bit about just engineers at different stages of organizations and, you know, how they think and, and how they work. And I think your tooling is the same, right? Like a big part of, of what we do is try to bring capabilities that only the largest organizations might have and make them accessible to smaller organizations by making them simple and them you know those organizations don't have to worry about actually building those things themselves i'd love to kind of expand a little bit into kind of measuring and, and how to sort of assess the overall productivity of the organization and I think you and I spoke about this when we the first time we met, actually, where basically as you kind of move beyond kind of those embryonic stages of the company, you really can't rely anymore on personal relationships and side of desk, you know, water cooler type catch ups to understand the health and the productivity of the organization. It's at some point, you know, metrics become a really critical means of assessing the pulse of the team. And, you know, not all those metrics that are available, you mentioned flow, not everything sort of created equal. And I think there are some that are better than others, some that are more inspiring than others to engineers. And you've also spoken a lot about, and, and I've read some of your blog posts about kind of the three key productivity metrics being sort of velocity, morale, and, and business. I'd love to just step through the three of those. We talked about retention earlier. In the context of retention, you know, morale metrics, what are some of the, the related metrics within that sort of sphere that 
managers can use to kind of understand the pulse of their org and to better anticipate some of this this churn and potential movement that we've talked about within the organization. Yeah. As you mentioned, I end up talking and writing about this a lot. And I'm, I'm super fascinated by metrics because they're such a double-edged sword, I guess is the best way to describe it. Meaning, to your point, as you get further away from the organization, and, and uh, I would say this is likely true of many leaders, you don't have that ability to just have an innate sense of what's happening. But metrics are a barometer, I guess that's, I don't know, I guess barometer is just a metric, but meaning they probably tell you that you should ask some questions. They certainly rarely tell you any answers. First of all, velocity, I'll call it velocity with a lowercase v. You know, if you're talking about flow, then you might talk about throughput because you're more of like a Kanban shop, but it's all the same in the sense of are we able to consistently achieve what we set out to do, right? And I actually end up talking a lot about predictability as a foundation for that, right? Meaning, can we say, yep, this is a thing that we're going to do. We believe this is impactful to the business and it's going to take us some reasonable amount of time. No one can see me making air quotes, but ideally you can do that in small units, right? Because then you can you can correct sooner. That's a big part of what we do in Agile. But as a team, that's probably valuable because you would say, wow, we're really struggling to predict how long it takes to do something, right? That's not necessarily an assessment of our abilities. It's more likely an assessment of, of a problem in the system, right? And the system is very complex, but that could be anything from we have a bunch of new folks on our team and they're they're not totally up to speed. So they don't have the understanding of the context to be able to say this is what it's going to take to do this. It might be that parts of our system are not well designed. It might be that we have a lot of interrupts coming in that are unexpected. And each of those things deserves some, some further digging, right? Oh, is there an investment that we could make technically? Is there a different process that we need to support our customers and make sure they have what they need so we're not as interrupt driven? You know, like it branches out very quickly from there. And to sit and look at a dashboard that says, you know, three fewer story points were delivered by team Y this week. Therefore, that team is a problem is, is bananas. But I think that we want that simplicity, right? We crave the ability to say, oh, I know exactly what's going on in the organization because I'm watching these charts. But, you know, those shifts in the chart are just, oh, I wonder if that's something worth asking about. And then I can say very lightly to some someone closer to the problem. Is there anything going on there? Oh, you know, a bunch of people are out on vacation, whatever. It's not even interesting. Or maybe that's part of how you see these things when they roll up, right? But, or it might be, yeah, we're getting slower and slower because of X thing of that whole list of, of ideas that I threw out. So coming back to the morale thing, I do think that's an interesting one and shares this, all of these share the same traits. Like as an organization, we do these engagement surveys and then in between them, lighter touch, just I'll call them NPS style, like employee NPS style surveys to just get a sense of how folks are doing. And we're blessed that our employees give us pretty open and honest feedback about that. And, and so we're paying attention at a high level to what's working well for employees and, and where we have places that we can improve to help them have a better experience. But that also trickles down to teams, right? The specific experience at our scale of folks in one team versus another can be different. And so there might be specific issues to tackle at a team level versus at a at an organization level and knowing that and I like recognizing that difference and then 
as a leader, focusing your time on the larger scale things that you can support and then giving space for managers to deal with the things that are closer to their team, I think is the best way to go about that. Yeah, making people feel connected to something larger than the bug fix that they're implementing or the new feature that they're adding, whatever it is. I I think that that's super important. Something that I guess in line with business metrics, I was wondering if you could just share some tactical examples of how you kind of marry a business level objective, like we need, you know, more users on our platform, we need whatever it is into translating that into engineering deliverables. So how to sort of bridge that divide between the tactical work that an engineer does and sort of the bottom line metrics that are important to the entire company. I'm very confident that there's a there's a huge role in there filled by the product management team. It's not the only player in there, but certainly as you look at the work that you could potentially do and what will have impact and what will have the greatest impact. That's a conversation typically led by product management, but certainly has to involve engineers. I think one of the challenges we faced and we, meaning the software engineering community at large over history has been go implement this exact thing versus, hey, we're trying to solve this problem. Here's what I'm thinking about. Tell me a little bit about what might be easy for us, what might be hard for us, how you would experience this. And this is, again, I talked before about the idiosyncrasies of building developer tools, right? Like our engineers have a reasonable perspective of what many of our customers are experiencing or desiring, right? So having a very open conversation there, I think is the best way to get to a good outcome. But by the time, let's say a product manager and engineering manager, engineering lead, whatever, in in a particular team, are looking at a problem, it is already a subset of the overall business goal, business possibility, right? So you have multiple teams, they're working independently on, on parts of the offering, right? And so it's important for those folks, both the leaders from an engineering perspective and the product managers to have a sense of how that fits into the bigger picture. You have to make sure, in my mind, that you're covering it from two different angles, which means one, painting the picture at a very high level for everyone in the organization, meaning as an individual engineer, I'm hearing from the CEO, the CTO, the CPO, where it is we're going overall, what we're trying to achieve, what matters to us over the next few years and in the next quarter sort of thing. But then I'm hearing the same thing from you know my product manager, my manager, who are saying, okay, in the context of that, here's how we fit in. And in order for them to be able to do that requires that to have come down from or or been a conversation with, again, it depends on your organization, but let's say your product director. There's kind of the pathway through the management chain. And then there's the overall big picture, which you want kind of everyone in the company to be hearing the same way. And if you don't cover it from both of those points, A, it's hard to connect. And honestly, the same message delivered multiple different ways is one of the best ways to make sure people actually hear it, right? Because people have different ways of interpreting, different ways of understanding, different styles of learning. Like, think about it however you want, but 
there's a reason that people talk about repeating the same thing seven times before it's really heard, right? As an immature leader, I always thought for some reason that that meant just say the same thing seven times. And I've come to the conclusion over time that I was wrong about that and, and that it's written form, spoken form, a slide deck, a document, a JIRA ticket, a conversation with my product manager, like all of those things as I'm getting the same message reinforced are the things that are allowing me to fill in those little gaps. And I, I mean, I find that might, I'll try to pick like a random subject from my own life, but in my own learning, I have to hear things a bunch of different ways. And then I start to connect the dots and say, oh, okay, okay, yeah, that thing leads to this thing. Okay, now I see it, right? And I think we struggle, I struggle as a leader to acknowledge sometimes the amount of context that I have that is not necessarily shared throughout the organization, right? So really taking the time to say, okay, how did I know this to be true? Like, how can I build up that understanding in order to deliver this message? Right. Makes a ton of sense. I had one more question. It's it's a prediction. I don't like to use the word prediction, sort of put things on the record, but maybe just your thoughts on the future of the space in general. There's so many advancements and machine learning and AI that's being injected into the, the software delivery lifecycle. You've got utilities like Copilot that are helping folks write code or take examples from other people's code. You've got intelligent scanners, you've got test generation tools, you've got test analytics tools, you've got, you guys acquired VAMP, which is doing automated sort of release orchestration with some continuous verification capabilities. So when you think about you know, all of these things are, are are super fascinating to me. And, and, and when I think about them, I, I always often wonder what will the impact of these tools be on software engineers, both just in terms of their productivity, but also like the very nature of what they do and the kind of skills and, and the capabilities and the, the experience that's required to be successful. So curious if you have any thoughts on that in general, just as all this stuff comes online, you know, some of it's earlier days than others. But if it sort of all reaches the, the promise and, and sort of the billing, how do you think about the future of kind of software development and, and the skills that will be needed to be successful with these tools coming online? Yeah, it's such a fascinating subject. I think we talked a little bit about sort of growing complexity and then finding ways to to abstract that complexity so that folks can get back to, you know, focusing on the core of what they're trying to do. And I feel like we're heading into a wave that's oriented towards that, meaning hmm, it's gotten so complex that it's difficult sometimes to do the job. Let's leverage some of these tools that we have. I'll just sort of bucket it all under AI and ML, but let's let's use some of those tools to simplify the parts of the job that can be simplified so we can focus on the part that can't. And, and I would bucket that as creativity, right? At some point, we're not going to build unique new offerings by training computers based off of old offerings to come up with offerings. Like, that would be cool, but I don't see that in our near future, right? We're trying to train, the, you talked about generating code, generating tests, like we're training machines or trying to do the things that we know how to do really well. And the next innovative idea is not something that we can that we can really train them on, right? So I, I think that part is is interesting and useful to be able to help us create the space to go, ultimately, we want to deliver value, right? And then I, I think there's an interesting 
impact that's harder to predict from an individual engineer perspective. Like it's easy to look at that and say, okay, this will be great for the business because my engineers can focus on things that are really moving us forward instead of dealing with the toil or however you want to think about it, right? But from an engineering perspective, there's an interesting class of engineers who are actually really excited about working on those on those particularly hard engineering problems. And does that future picture align with why they do what they do, right? And maybe it means only those really hard problems have to get solved. Maybe they end up focusing on the AI and ML technology that allows us to do these things, right? But like, what is the next really hard, I'll call it computer science problem, right? That's not I'm just trying to build a cool capability for a customer and I'll take all this stuff off the shelf to make it happen. Like, I think there's a class of engineers there and I'm not sure what it means for them, but I think that will be interesting. Of course, building the machinery is hard, right? Building that machinery that allows us to do all these things. The other interesting cohort, I guess, from an engineering perspective is the cohort that's enabled to build software because a lot of those problems have been pushed to the side. Right. And I think the extreme is kind of the no code view of the world. And I think that's a really interesting segment because my experience so far has been even when we make these things easier and easier for ourselves, we always end up somewhere deep in the machine trying to fix something at some point. And so, how do we ensure that people have the understanding that they need in order to be successful? while trying to keep them from having to use it most of the time. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it's not particularly useful to be solving some of these really gnarly engineering problems, but they will come up. So when they do, how do we stay fresh? You know, how do we make sure that people have that understanding of the depth of systems when it's not what they do most of the time? And I have no idea how that plays out because that's not the that's not the world that I grew up in, but I'm going to be fascinated by that particular problem, right? And then do we end up training machines to solve these problems too? I mean, that would be cool, but I don't know if it's somewhere at the end. And maybe, maybe with those two cohorts, I've sort of thought about it and created those two groups, but there's going to be something underneath all that that still is, you know, at the end of the day, there's going to be CPUs and disks and RAM, right? Making all this stuff work. And who's who's still around that remembers that stuff? Yep. Yeah, it seems like we'll definitely need a balance there for the foreseeable future. This was great, Rob. So thank you again, you know, so much for doing this today. It's always an enlightening conversation with you. If folks are interested, you know, I know you love talking about this stuff, tweeting about it, blogging, etc. What's the best way for people to kind of follow you and, and learn more? Yeah, so I write a fair bit on our blog, the CircleCI, so CircleCI.com. Uh, you can find the blog there. And then I actually have a podcast of my own called The Confident Commit, where I talk to other engineering leaders about, I would say, everything related to delivering software effectively, which it turns out is pretty much everything you try to do in an engineering organization. And so, yeah, constantly fascinated by this subject and constantly learning from others. So I'm really enjoying that. Awesome. i huge fan of Confident Commit for what it's worth. Thanks again, Rob. This was amazing. Right on. Thanks for having me.